All right, everybody. Uh, welcome again to the Kyle Dildine Show. Uh, today, my guest is my older cousin, Jared Maven. Um, he and I have kind of a cool story. He served in the same mission as I did, um, which, you know, obviously creates a really cool bond there. Um, he started and sold Brody's. People in the Boise Meridian area will probably remember that from... When did you sell it, actually? That was four years ago now that we sold it. Holy smokes. Yeah, That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so four years ago, you probably remember Brody's. Um, he was a former English teacher and an amazing father. Um, I'll tell you, Jared, why I wanted you on the podcast. Do you remember when we went on that scout camp out together, that conversation we had? Yeah. That was a huge impact for me, actually. Cool. Um, just because you were probably the first person kind of like outside of my like immediate circle to tell me that it was okay to not go to college. <laughs> I went home to my wife and I was like, Jared thinks it's all right that I'm not going to college. <laughs> She's like, well, good for Jared. <laughs> Ironic coming from a school teacher. Right. Yeah. But that conversation was just like super enlightening for me and good. helped me a ton. So, good. and then of course, when I started my podcast, you were one of the first people that came to my mind. Cool. Just in terms of that. Well, I appreciate it. It's good. So I guess I'll let you, do you want to give yourself a little intro too? Yeah. What do you want to know? Um, I'll start from the mission, I guess, since that's what you brought up, um, kind of the beginning of adult life for a lot of LDS people, boys and girls alike, right? Um, I actually moved out of my house, my parents' house, um, about a year before my mission to go to college, um, played a year of college football just for fun, and then went and served my mission, um, which was a fantastic experience, obviously. And then we can get into more detail, whatever you want here, but I'll just give the quick points of my life from that point. Uh, came home uh, ready to tackle the world and went to college to become a hospital administrator and actually got two years into a business degree and um, took an internship with the cardiology department at St. Luke's in downtown Boise. Hmm. Did that for about a year working with their business development team and hated it. It was <laughs> so boring to me and I really liked the idea of the medical field um, because I felt like it was somewhere where you could really help people. Yeah. Um, and it opened my eyes a lot about what the medical field is these days and it's a business and it has to be to be able to provide the kind of medical care that we have here in the United States. It's a, it's a corporate business model. And so it was a lot of emails and sitting in an office, which at the time was not very appealing to me. So two years into that, um, I went through a lot of headache and thought and prayer and consideration and talked to a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me and decided to change to an English teaching degree, which is night and day different, um, and fell in love with it instantly. Um, I was at Boise State at the time, stayed at the same university, um, Started knocking my classes out and just loved every single one of them. I uh, finished my degree there pretty quickly and jumped right into a master's degree because I enjoyed it so much and I loved academics and loved the university I was a part of and the relationships there. So I finished up my master's degree in administration at Boise State and then I jumped right into a doctorate because I loved school still and loved the content. Um, and got about a semester into my doctorate program 
and was experiencing high levels of burnout. I had been in education yeah. for, by that time, about seven years. Um, during all of that, I had gotten married, and by the time I was in my doctorate program, had four kids at home, all under the age of eight, um, and was working a full-time job. Um, and so it just became a little heavy. To do my doctorate, to fund it, I was a graduate assistant. I was being paid to do that. So they covered my tuition and were paying for health care. But that required that I was in X number of courses every right. semester at Boise State, graduate courses. And then I also had to do a considerable amount of research and writing for the College of Education. Um, so all in all, it was about 30 hours a week of academics. And then I was working 40 to 50 hours a week at my job. Jeez. Um, and so that just wasn't super sustainable. And at the time, I was also serving um, as an elder scorn president. And it was just too much. I couldn't do it all and be the kind of dad and husband I wanted to be. Yeah. And take care of myself the way I wanted to. So an um, interesting time of transition. That was right about the time also that I, I had been teaching for three years um, as an English teacher. And that was also the time that I decided to stop teaching and to really change things up and go see what else was out there after seven years in the education world. And that's when I took a job uh, as a project manager at Highland Homes, building custom homes. Um, and so over the period of a year, a, a lot changed. I quit going to school for the first time in eight years yeah. and changed from, uh, from education to the private sector and construction. Um, so it was good. But anyway, that brings me to this point. I've been with Highland Homes now for four years and love what I do. I've been in three different Positions, I guess you could say four different positions here in Highland Homes in the past four years. So it's been kind of constant change, but a lot of fun and um, have a little more time now to be with my wife and kids and really enjoy it. So that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and we'll go into a lot of those things in sure. more detail too. But yeah. um, let's start, I guess, with your mission. Yeah. In terms of the great land of Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, what what was your experience like? What did you learn? You know, lessons and things like that. Yeah, this is good. Um, and maybe this first comment appeals a little bit more to the LDS community. But um, the mission for me when I first arrived in Ohio was a huge disappointment. Really? <laughs> I was really let down. I got into the Missionary Training Center in Provo and loved it immediately. Um, I loved how focused everyone was. I loved how busy it was. Um, it was just a lot of fun. I love the relationships that were built there so quickly and then got out into the mission field and found that a lot of missionaries were not as focused or dedicated on the work as I thought they would be. Yeah. Um, I kind of had a vision growing up that everybody wanted to go on a mission and that everybody was obedient and that everybody did what they were expected to do as a missionary. Um, and that just wasn't the case. There were a lot of guys that, um, were there for the wrong reasons or showed up for the right reasons and lost track of that somewhere along the way. Um, but yeah, it was a little discouraging yeah. to see that I was almost a little bit of a minority as somebody who wanted to follow all the rules and was there right. to do what I was told to do and to try to get the most out of it for myself. And so that was a good life lesson for me that you kind of have to uh, make your life circumstances what you want them to be and not expect the world to set it up for you. Yeah. You know, 
Um, and so I kind of had to fight against the grain a little bit and do what I thought was best and what wasn't always popular. And, uh, it was especially hard because, um, in a more secular setting outside of an LDS mission, um, it can be easy to, to see what's right from wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're in a mission, you're surrounded by people that you have assumed all your life are the most obedient there are. And so when they're not following the rules, it can be a little hard to contradict their actions. Does that make any sense? Yeah, totally. Um, so anyway, that was a good lesson. But from that point, you know, six, eight, nine months into my mission, uh, things started to change. The culture of the mission changed a little bit and more and more people were on board. Um, and so it became a little better experience, started to fit a little bit more of what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. But I, I had to take an active role in, in making that happen for myself. That's funny. I didn't know that. Um, I actually had like the same ex- oh, experience. Really? So we both yeah. started in Dublin for everybody who doesn't know Dublin, Ohio, mm-hmm. my trainer, he's like one of my best friends. So I can tell you this, but he was like super disobedient. Yeah. Like I didn't know that you were supposed to wake up before eight o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I remember emailing my dad just being like, I thought we were supposed to be obedient all uh-huh. the time. And you know, the MTC, I was just on fire Yeah. and then you get out there and you're like, <laughs> yeah, what the heck is going on? Yeah. It's weird. Um, well, cool. What, what would you say in terms of like work and work ethic did you learn about on your mission? Um, yeah, it's, uh, that's, and I didn't know it at the time, but that's where I was starting to learn that busy and productive are different things. Ooh. Um, and I, I, I didn't even learn it till probably after my mission. But, um, you know, tracting for those of you that are listening that don't know, that's just going door to door and knocking right, and asking people if they want to hear about the church. And, um, it's statistically the least effective way of finding people who are interested right. in the gospel or in the church. Um, but it has a stigma about it of being, um, well, if you're tracting, you're working hard. Yeah. Right. And that's all anybody ever wanted to do was just work hard, uh, or be thought of as a hardworking missionary. At least that's what I wanted. And, uh, so we, I would keep myself super, super busy all the time, um, and not really see a lot of results. Yeah. Um, but I had to fight a lot of, especially later in my mission, when I really started to learn that lesson, I had to fight a lot of the inner, voices in my head, uh, that would make me feel guilty if I didn't feel like I was busy all the time. Um, and so that was difficult. That was hard to learn how to, to talk myself out of just doing busy work all the time, but to actually slow down and and figure out what was productive and what was going to yield the best results to this day. It's something I struggle with, but is a valuable lesson to learn the difference between being busy and being productive. Totally. Sure. That's crazy that you say that. Cause that's something I'm struggling with right yeah. now in terms of, cause you know, obviously my most productive as a realtor, my most productive time is finding new clients. Yeah. Um, but I feel like if I'm not actively doing something throughout the whole day mm-hmm. that I totally wasted the day, right. You know, where you could put two solid hours in of prospecting and then take an hour to, keep all that together and be just as productive as six hours of sure. messaging people online sure. or something. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, 
I doubt Sister Cepeda is listening, but tell <laughs> tell that story because this is one of my favorite stories. Yeah, the Cepedas were just one of the first families I met on my mission uh, from Mexico. I don't remember what part, Mexico City. I can't remember Mexico. either. But right down in Mexico and um, had been in Dublin for several years by the time I got there. But just a great family. Fell in love with them instantly. They're the kind that just would let anybody in. And uh, obviously food was the way that they showed their love. <laughs> and Sister Cepeda was an incredible cook. And so we were over there probably once a week having just the best Mexican food I'd ever had in my life um, and built a really strong relationship with them and then came home and when you yeah got sent out, you met them right away, right? Well, yeah. So I went into my first area mm-hmm. and we went over and I said, yeah, my cousin actually served in this area. And she was like, who's your cousin? And I said, Elder Maven. And she like dropped everything, <laughs> ran into the other room and grabbed her phone and pulled up Facebook and he's like, find him now. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. oh my goodness. And she's like, I love Elder Maven. And she's like, what, probably five foot, maybe? Yeah, a little tiny gal. But she was just like a little spitfire. Like. Yeah. <laughs> she yeah. was awesome. Amazing it's, family. Yeah. So that instantly gave me like a ton of credibility. Like yeah. she instantly loved me <laughs> just <laughs> because good. of what you did. You met the right person. Though. So <laughs> she's awesome. <laughs> Um, I guess I'd say my last thing, what would you say to somebody who's like on the verge of going on a mission? Maybe they want to go, maybe they don't want to go. Yeah. Um, that's a tough question. Um, the textbook answer would be to, you know, go no matter what. Uh, but the world's changing and it's hard to say that anymore. Um, I think because of my beliefs in the gospel and the prophets, um, I do feel that we have an obligation to go. Um, I feel that it's a commandment to go. Um, I think anyone that chooses not to go is forfeiting a tremendous experience where they can learn a lot. But I also know that there that people. Uh, struggle with a wide range of personal problems. Um, anxiety and depression are becoming more and more uh, present in our in our world, um, and that the inside the church is no exception. Um, there are family situations that are tough, and you you never want to break up a family or say anything that would cause contention between parents and kids. Um, Obviously, scripturally in the New Testament, even the Lord tells us that we shouldn't choose family over the gospel. And I would never contradict that. But it's just so hard to know. It's hard to say yeah, with people in their personal individual circumstances, situations. But for somebody who doesn't have a good excuse and who is just trying to decide if it would be good or not, the answer is yes, it's good. And if you can make it happen, make it happen. Um, cause it'll really set a tone and a pace for the rest of your life that is going to be, I won't say impossible, but very difficult to replicate in yeah. either way. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I don't really know how to smoothly transition into next questions. Just jump <laughs> so into let's just go to the next one. Yeah. Um, your college experience is another reason why I wanted to interview mm-hmm. just because I have a ton of friends who are in similar circumstances where they're getting into their second and third or maybe even their fourth year of college and they don't really know what 
they want to do or where, what route they want to go. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to some people who feel like they're failures because they don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to for me not going to college to say like you don't have to know right now. It'll be mm-hmm. all right. You know. I guess what advice would you give to somebody in college that's trying to figure things out? You know. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah, Dave Ramsey is one of the first public figures that I heard say that going to college isn't always the right move. Um, at least respectable public figure. Uh, and I heard that when I was younger from him. And that was intriguing to me because um, he's has a lot of really conservative views. And growing up in a conservative home, going to college was just kind of what I was raised to think was the right move. Um but uh, the truth of it is, is that college is really expensive and most people don't have the means to pay for college when they're 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, so you got to find a way to balance work and family and whatever else you have going on and pay for school at the same time and get through it. Unless you're fortunate enough to have scholarship opportunities, of course. Yeah. Um, but... You don't you don't have to know what you're gonna do right away to go to college and get value out of it. Having gone to college, a lot of college, um, it's not so important. I don't think it's so important that you know what you're going to college for. What college did for me is it taught me how to think. Um, and I'm not saying I'm the best thinker or that I have it totally figured out yet, mm-hmm. but um, once again, it's going to be hard to replicate a scenario for such an extended period of time where your personal values and assumptions are questioned so systematically like they will be in a university. Right. And that is extremely valuable. Absolutely. Um, to see things, to be forced to see things from a different angle. Um, colleges are always going to be of a little more of a liberal mindset than a conservative mindset, which is good for me growing up in a super conservative family. Yeah. To have a lot of my assumptions questioned. Um, College taught me that it was okay to question what you think is true. Yeah. Um, It taught me to to research. It taught me how to find good information. Um, A ton of stuff. It taught me how to ask questions. Um, And those are things that sound simple, but uh, really aren't to do them well. Yeah. So college can be, I think the, those benefits that I gained from college can be replicated and can be found in other settings, but it has to be pretty intentional and you have to work really hard at it. Yeah. Uh, for most people that are in their early twenties, I think it's hard to have the self-discipline to replicate that kind of situation for yourself. Right. Um, but it's all there. It's in books and it's in, I, I'm a big believer in writing. Um, I, I think you have to write to discover, you have to write to learn, um, so reading's only half the equation, but if you can have the discipline to read and to write a tremendous amount, uh, there are other things as well, obviously that you need to do, but I think you can find those benefits, uh, without having to pay for a, for a degree. Yeah. I, I like what you said about learning. I think that's probably one of the most, like if we're going to talk big picture here, mm-hmm. plan of salvation, mm-hmm. big picture. I mean, that's the whole reason we're here, yeah. you know, is to learn and to grow. And sure. obviously that route is going to look different for some people. Some people might go my route with, you know, education comes more in books and courses and things like mm-hmm. that. 
some people might go to trade school, other people might go to college. Yeah. But I think most importantly, it's learning and yeah. growing, you know. Yeah. And that I think you should learn your entire life, you know. That should sure. be a huge thing. So I, I like that you said that. That's a pretty, yeah. pretty yeah. positive thing. Absolutely. Um, on to the next question. So being a school teacher, how long were you, was it three years? Or? I taught for two and a half years, actually. Two and a half. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give for parents to make sure their kids are enjoying school or doing well in school or to get the most out of school? Maybe that's the best way. Yeah. That's an easy one. You have to be an active participant in your children's learning. Um, I did some research uh, in grad school about student outcomes and performance. And there are, there are a bunch of things that contribute to a student's ability to perform well in school and to learn. Um, but the top two are uh, miles ahead of any of the others. And this is actually considering a lot of factors, including learning disabilities, emotional disturbances. Um, all this stuff is factored into this research. Um, the, the number one best determining factor of how well a student is going to do in school is parent involvement. Really? Um, the number two, uh, which is way beneath number one by a long shot, uh, but way ahead of number three is the quality of teacher the student has. Really? Yeah. So I, you know, it's funny and, and being a home builder now and I don't, I'm okay if this gets back to anybody because I'll, again, I've, I've read the literature and done the research on it and can back it up. But uh, people that we build homes for now are so concerned about being in Eagle schools. Yeah. Right? Uh, they even erroneously refer to it as the Eagle School District. It's not. It's <laughs> the West Ada School District, and they just want to be in Eagle High School um, because Eagle High School has a lot of funding. A lot of money comes in from families and parents, and right. um, there's a lot of affluence in the area. And they're really concerned about that um, or getting into a certain school district and stuff. It, when really the school that a kid is in does not have nearly as much to do, almost nothing comparatively um, to do with the success of the student as does how good of a teacher they have. Yeah. And I've worked in several different schools in different districts in different settings and there are amazing teachers everywhere. Yeah. Um, so that has a lot to do with it is finding the right teacher. But, but again, that's a, a far cry and a, a long second shot from the most important thing. And that is parental involvement in their kid's education. Um, so that means a wide range of things, knowing what your kids are working on in school day to day, knowing their teacher, having a relationship with their teacher, um, being aware of your kid's social lives, who they're talking to at school and what they're doing looking at their schoolwork when they bring it home, even if they don't have homework, just so you can be aware of the kinds of things they're learning, supporting the content they're learning, um, you know, read books with them that are related to the things they're learning in school. There are a million ways to be involved in your kid's education, but um, be an advocate for your kid. And, and one of the biggest things is teaching your kids to advocate for themselves mm-hmm. um, when they're struggling at school or they don't understand something to teach them how to raise their hand and ask questions um, to teach them to be their own active participant in their learning. But until they're old enough to do that, which 
scientifically, psychologically, it shows that that really starts to take shape about third grade. Mm-hmm. Um, so prior to that point, kind of modeling for your children what self-advocacy looks like in their education Um, going to all your parent-teacher conferences talking to the teachers asking questions about the curriculum yeah and all of that stuff is absolutely crucial that's super interesting i didn't even know that yeah um oh i just lost the question i was going to ask you i guess what would you say to people that say, oh, I don't really have enough time to go through my kid's binder or, mm-hmm. or I don't have the time to sit down and do homework with them. You yeah. know, what would you say to those parents? Then pay for a tutor to do it. <laughs> it, you have, it has to happen. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you'll find kids that will succeed regardless because they're fortunate to have really good teachers and right. good friends that support them and good coaches that help them out. Um, but again, nothing is going to have the impact that parental involvement has so um you do have time to do it we could i mean you you know there are books on it we could do a whole other podcast about time management (laughs) Uh, you've got time to go through your kids binder um so you got to make the time to do it and if you just don't have the time really talk yourself into believing that then do it oh there are tons of tutors out there that'll after school hours sit with your kid for 20 minutes and go through their binder with them and ask them the questions it's not going to have the same impact because um, they don't have that same emotional connection and relationship with their parent but right. um, but it's going to help at least it's super interesting so yeah um, I probably know the answer to this question and probably everybody does too but you being an athlete throughout school I was an athlete throughout school mm-hmm. How, how does that benefit, maybe not just athletics, but just extracurriculars? Yeah, extracurricular activities are big. Um, athletics have their place. You know, there are some people that will preach it all day long. Um, I think it's important for the social aspect, for learning how to participate on teams and um, interact with adults outside of school settings and um, learning how to compete. I think those are all great things, but... There are ways other than athletics to get those benefits for sure. Um, but I think it's important. I, I think the, the biggest thing, I don't know if you've ever read the book called Flow, mm-hmm. um, but it talks about getting your mind into a state where it's uh, totally focused. And a key component of being totally focused is finding some intrinsic value in what you're doing. Yeah. And to me, that's the more important thing. A lot of people find that in athletics. Their body and mind are both engaged in one objective. Right. Um, a lot of kids don't find flow in schoolwork, right? Their body's not engaged. Their mind's barely engaged. Um, they're trying their best. But there are a lot of benefits to being in a state of flow. And that's uh, just teaching your mind how to focus um, on the task at hand. And that translates beautifully into all aspects of your life socially academically spiritually to be able to learn to focus and concentrate on on the matter at hand totally um so extracurriculars i think one of the main benefits of extracurricular activities and athletics is that you're training your mind to learn how to get into that state of flow that's awesome focus on the present and on what's at hand yeah uh, instruments do that for kids. Parkour does that for kids. Dance <laughs> does that for kids. A lot of things can get a kid to learn how to focus on the present moment. Um, 
And I think that's what causes a lot of the social benefits and academic benefits and learning qualities that come from extracurricular activities is just that ability to focus. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, okay, we're shifting again. Sorry for my chunky <laughs> um, switches, but it's all good. Brody's. Yeah. This is probably one of my favorite. I keep saying that, but it's another one of my favorite stories. Yeah. You know, um, how did it start? What was it like having it? How did you sell it? All that fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things to talk about because it was one of the best and worst things in my life. <laughs> uh, Brody's is the result. I've got two brothers younger than me and I don't know where it came from, but we have this entrepreneurial itch, unfortunately, that's kind of pesty at times. Um, it doesn't leave us alone. We're always trying to stew about what's next. Um, and I've learned a lot the past couple of years about maybe some of the negative aspects of that and how to control it. Um, cause being an entrepreneur is never a bad thing. Um, well, I won't say that. <laughs> it's a good thing, but but I think if you don't learn how to manage it appropriately, it can have some seriously negative effects on your life. It can be a freaking addiction. <laughs> yeah, it, it can. Um, and we can get more of that later too, but um, I've, I've just seen some really unfortunate stories uh, from close friends and even some personal stories for myself um, from not really understanding how how to be an entrepreneur. And I'm not saying I know how perfectly by any means, but I've learned a few lessons and, and made some serious mistakes and seen some mistakes and had some small successes that have taught me a few things about it at a very small level. But Brody's, um, it was a result of that entrepreneurial itch, just always wanting to do something, to own something, to run something, to create something and see it function. And so... My brother, Jay, served his mission in Hawaii and came home from his mission. I had just finished up when he got home working on a, another business venture with my other brother called BodyWise Universal. It was intended to be an online wellness program. Um, and we spent a lot of other people's money and it never took off anywhere. And so I was trying to climb out of that hole. And... Right then, my brother Jace called me and said, hey, they don't have Hawaiian shave ice here like they do in Hawaii, mm -hmm. and we need to get it here somehow. And I said, all right, let's do it. Okay. So we figured it out. We estimated that we needed about $8,000 to buy a shack and all the equipment and whatever else we needed to do to get it off and running. So I went to the bank and... Um, borrowed $8,000 on a personal line of credit. And we got going and burnt through that eight grand pretty quick. We had pretty grand dreams. You, you shouldn't, by the way, ever have to spend that kind of money to start a snow coach <laughs> the way we wanted to do it. And so we ordered these fancy machines from Japan and imported all of our flavors from Hawaii. Um, we built a shack that was kind of janky but it looked cool by the time it was all said and done and hired some employees which you don't really need to hire employees to do a snow cone shack either but we thought we needed employees so we hired employees and we made t-shirts and got it all set up and so needed some more money and bank wouldn't give me more money because I was I was still doing my master's program and I was a teacher my first year teaching and 
at that time, teacher salary is hired. I was making less than $33,000 a year, which is not much to make when you're trying to support a family. And so the bank wouldn't lend me any more money. So I used student loan money to fund the rest of it and took out a bunch of student loans that I didn't need um, <laughs> to keep it going. And all in all, ended up borrowing about $25,000 to start the snow cone shack, which was great. It got up and going, and I don't know how we made it all happen, but we did. And spent a lot of late nights, and it all happened over the course of about three weeks. It was very fast. Oh, geez, I didn't know that. Yeah, it, it all happened really quick. So we got it up and going, and because he came to me with the idea in the wintertime, and we wanted it up by, by spring when it was warm out so we could start going and... So we got Brody's going in the spring and our first day of business. We didn't know how it was going to go. We had never sold anything before. It was really educational. We got through all the, you know, we set it up as an LLC. We got through all the health code stuff with central district health and, um, all the food permits and we had to find a lot. And so we got a hold of commercial real estate agent and found a lot that he would lease us. And then we had to go get an electrician and pay him an absurd amount of money to get power to the lot so we could plug our shack in and have music going just the way we wanted and everything. And um, So we got that all set up in about three weeks. And we for three weeks, we didn't sleep. I mean, we were up late at night building our shack and getting yeah. the site prepped and figuring out our recipes to make these things just right. And so we got it all done and up and running on our first day. It was a Saturday and we started a Facebook page and we told uh, everybody if we could get, I don't remember what the exact number was, a thousand likes or something on our Facebook page within 48 hours. It was some big goal like that, that we would do free snow cones for three hours on a Saturday that we opened. So we hit our goal. We ended up with like 1500 likes on our page Jeez. in like two or three days, um, which was awesome. And for like six solid hours on Saturday, we had lines out to the street from our shack. I mean, it was yeah. awesome. Just I remember that yeah, day. It was throngs, huge. throngs of people, <laughs> and we were so amused. We were sitting back thinking, "What happened? Like this is just a snow cone shack." At the end of the day, I've never seen a snow cone shack with lines in front of it. Um, it was partway through that season. There was a snow cone shack just a half mile down the road that had been setting up at that location for years. Mm -hmm. And they packed up shop and had to leave because we were sucking all the business in from the whole area. That made you feel like a boss. Yeah, it was all awesome. <laughs> but we didn't know what we were doing and we put someone else out of business right away. And so we started doing fairly well. The shack generated, um, you know, gross profit. We were doing over 10 grand a month. Dang. which is pretty good for a little snow cone shack. Yeah. Um, but it's cause we just, we had lines of people out the door constantly. Uh, the same season we went in, Hokalia was a brand out of Utah that some people had started and franchised cause they were successful down there. So some dude up here bought three Hokalia shacks and came up. Um, and so we were worried, crap, here's this big, you know, set up. They've been doing it for five or six years. They know what they're doing. They right. franchised and uh, we smoked their numbers. They really? didn't even come close. The guy that, that bought them and owned them was actually a, the dad of a friend of my younger brother, of uh, Jace. And so we were fairly privy to how their business was going. And they only made it two years and had to pack up and leave. Really? Um, 
and we were able to stick it out longer than that and keep going. So we kind of figured it out. I learned a lot about what attracts business yeah. during that time. And it was on a, it was nice. It was on a small scale. We didn't have like millions of dollars invested in something, but we definitely learned a lot about how to attract business. Um, and we're pretty good at it. Um, if you've ever read Simon Sinek before, I know him. I haven't read any of his yeah, books. Yeah. Some of his stuff's really good. Um, one of his books that I really like and always recommend to people is, um, start with why he has start with why and he has finding your why and finding your why is more of the pragmatic approach to, to what why is and how you find it. But start, start with why is a little more of the philosophical type book. And I, I really enjoy it. But, um, we, without even knowing it, had kind of found that. And the idea is that your why shouldn't necessarily be something related to your business, right? It mm-hmm. should be a, a deeper thing. Um, and at, at Brody's, for us, it was all about a certain lifestyle. It wasn't really about snow cones. It was more about, well, the idea was derived from the North Shore of Oahu and Hawaii um, and a feeling that's there. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of a rundown, grungy country feeling um, mixed with beaches and surf and reggae music. And so snow cones were kind of the way that we were presenting that feeling. Yeah. But we were trying to sell more than just snow cones. We were trying to really sell people that vibe, which sounds like a bit of a stretch, but I think we were kind of able to do it. I mean, we had some really devout followers that loved oh, yeah. what we did. Um, and we would have kids show up on a Saturday just to hang out at Brody's. Uh, they wouldn't even come to buy snow cones. I mean, they would, but they would just hang out there and bring their skateboards and, and hang out, uh, hang out with us for a couple hours. And so it was cool. We had really found a, a good niche and a good vibe and uh, had a ton of fun running the company. So we were profitable, did well. The second year uh, is when we got ambitious and decided that we thought we had something worth growing here. And so we went to find an investor to grow the business. Um, what we wanted to do was build a brick and mortar location for mm-hmm. Brody's and surf snow cones year round. Um, and so we did, you need to plug in. Yeah. I'm going to plug my laptop in real quick. There's a plug in. Right here. Okay. Um, so we went and found some folks who had gotten some money um, I won't disclose their name, I guess. I don't know who's getting out to, but um, they jumped in and were really good uh, to start with. They flew us down, actually, right when they became partners. We, um, I had never partnered with anybody legally before in a business. So we pitched the idea to them. We sold them on the idea. They bought in on it but they wanted 51% of the company. Mm-hmm. So that was hard for me because that gives them ownership. Yeah. Um, and this was kind of me and my brother's baby. We, it was our vision, our dream. So that was hard. But at the end of the day, we decided we just weren't going to be able to advance as quickly if we didn't have the support from these people. So we got an attorney, we drafted up the papers and we sold them 51% of the company. Um, they, left us obviously as the managers and operators of the company. They flew us down to San Antonio right after we signed. And there's a place down there called Bahama Bucks and they're a brick and mortar snow cone mm-hmm. place. And they're franchised in the nineties sometime. 
have 40 or 50 locations, I think, through the south. So they wanted us to see that and kind of use that as a model, which was fair. So we went down there and spent a few days learning about Bahama Bucks and kind of doing a leadership retreat and kind of just getting used to each other as, as business partners. And it was good. It was inspiring. It was fun. It was interesting. Uh, and we came back and very quickly started to have some pretty serious differences of opinion mm-hmm. on how the company should be run. Um, and on what their role in being partners with us was. Um, and I, I wouldn't ever say that it got messy necessarily, uh, but very frustrating mm-hmm. for me and Jace particularly because we cared so much about this little business that we had built and had such a, a keen vision of where we wanted it to go and had really gone out on a limb selling 51% of this thing to somebody to help us realize that vision. Um, and it started to feel like they just weren't uh, invested in it the way that we were. Right. So we kind of fought that battle with them for about a year, um, and it was a very stressful year. It was really frustrating. Um, a lot of time, a lot of emotional energy was blown. Um, it was rough. Uh, a lot of sleepless nights trying to figure stuff out. Um, I mean, we had got up to a point where we had like 11 employees that we were trying to take care of, and. Um, had a lot of money in a lot of different places trying to get this thing to grow and um, so it was interesting times for sure all from a small snow cone shack yeah but that's what you have to go through if you're going to grow something and become a franchise model and all this stuff and so right we went through a lot it was a good learning experience at the end of the day we just had a really frank conversation with them and said hey this we're seeing things differently we're, you know this isn't going where we thought it was and um, we were pretty fortunate to be able to get out of that partnership cordially. And so we operated for one more year after that um, without our partners and had full ownership again. And by the time that hit, I had kind of taken off in my career with Highland Homes, wasn't teaching anymore. Um, Jace was doing well in his business with his work and um, we just got to a point where it kind of felt like the time that we were investing was probably better spent somewhere else and um, hit a few logistical road bumps that we could have overcome for sure if we wanted to. Um, but we had a buyer come to us that said, hey, I love what you do. I own a Hawaiian restaurant in Nampa and would love to incorporate this as part of it. Um, and and so we put together an offer for him to buy it and he accepted it and we were able to sell it for quite a bit more than we had put into it. And so we felt like it was a good opportunity at the time. And That's awesome. Unloaded it and he took, uh, he still runs it, still operates it out in Nampa, does well with it. And um, so yeah, that was kind of the end of Brody's, but uh, I mean a lifetime of lessons packed into three years there with a little yeah. business that we had. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't know if you remember this, but when you guys, I came over to your parents' house where you had it parked uh-huh. while you were paying it for him. Oh, yeah. And Jace, he's like, well, we just sold this. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. He's like, yeah, call me Warren freaking Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't even know. That. It was quite a Warren Buffett situation. We yeah. thought it was a big deal because we had successfully sold a business, but the dollar signs were a little different <laughs> that's I, pretty funny though I love that though. I was pretty hyped about it well that was like right when I got home from a mission so I was like starting to explore with this sure. entrepreneurial 
like mindset. Yeah. So I saw you guys sell this business and I was like that. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but they yeah. look like they're doing pretty good and yeah. stuff. So that yeah. was, that was a pretty cool experience. <laughs> it was, and it was a ton of fun. Uh, I mean, I, I, mean, I remember after doing that, Jason, and I were talking and we were like, man, if we could make a living out of just starting and selling businesses, we totally would. Um, but that was a young perspective. I, I still think it was a blast and I, my entrepreneurial niche is, or itch is not gone. I, I still will continue to look for opportunities and still have a lot of fun building business. That's part of why I'm still with Highland Homes and love it so much, frankly, is that I have a lot of freedom to create and innovate and, and help build the business here where I work and receive benefits from that yeah. personally and financially. And, um, so it's kind of scratching my itch, but I'm not assuming all the risk of, of business ownership necessarily at the same time. So right. um, it's a good place right now, but that'll always be there. And uh, I still think it's fun. Yeah, but absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Last, last question mm-hmm. or last, I guess, topic. Obviously nobody is perfect yeah. when I ask you this question, but I think your parents are studs yeah. and more particularly since this is, this question is shaped towards men. Your yeah. dad is obviously a stud yeah. and has raised you guys really well. Sure. Um, and I look at you the way that you father your children and it's just somebody, you know, something that I like to emulate. I like to look for obviously role models to keep uh, in mind. How are they doing this? How are they acting around their kids and things like that? Sure. And you being one of my top role models, I would just want to know what's your advice for fathers, especially probably like younger fathers where I'm in, like starting a business or in college and got one, maybe two kids, you know, mm. how do you balance that working a ton, but still giving your wife and your kids their time that they need? Mm. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, that's flattering. And thanks for speaking kindly towards me and my family. I would say the same for you. Um, and that's a big question. There really a lot of moving pieces. Um, and it's a deep question because everybody's so different. You know, if there was a magic formula to parenting or being a father, um, then someone would be a billionaire selling books with it in there right now. Right. And nobody is, right? And everyone's taking a shot at it. And there are bits and pieces here and there, but there's no one right way, I don't think, first of all. Um but there are some principles I think you can live by that make it better. Um, the big one for me is uh, to learn the art of being present. And that is really, really hard to do. For me anyway. Uh, maybe it's easier for others. But uh, being present is kind of the key. Um and so, you know, I remember talking to uh, Tommy Alquist a few years ago. I met with him, and he and I were having a kind of a similar interview to this, just talking about there's actually a, an assignment in my master's program. We had to go find a, a local community leader and interview him, and we had a set of questions we had to run through with him. And so I picked him because um, I knew him through a, a friend. And so, he at the time, anyone that doesn't know Tommy Alquist, he ran for governor a year or so ago. He lost the race, but um, he's got his hands in land development here in Boise and um, was involved with Gardner Company for a long time, which is a you know whatever multi-billion dollar 
land development acquisition company based out of Utah. Um, he's recently started his own development company. He's a, an ER doc um, and ran an ER practice for years. Started a business called Stat Pads that still operates here out of Boise. It's heart monitoring through iPads and runs out successfully. And at the time that I interviewed him, he was also a state president. Um, and so I just wanted to know how he made it all click, right? And yeah. got through stuff. And he kind of said the same thing to me. He said, I had learned to compartmentalize. He said, when I'm in my state president office, I'm a state president. Mm-hmm. And that's all I think about. He said, when I'm um, running my medical practice, I'm a doctor and I'm taking care of people. Mm-hmm. And that's all I'm worried about. When I'm working for Gardner Company, I'm a land developer. And that's what I'm focused on. And when I get home at night, I'm a husband and a father. And that's it. And I, I let the other stuff go. Um, and that's the same concept as being present. And this kind of goes full circle to, to some of the pitfalls of entrepreneurship that I had mentioned earlier that I think it can be a negative thing. There's a lot of folks, I think, uh, and I don't like to speak in general terms, but I think a lot of people that have that entrepreneurial itch, their brain's always going. Yeah. They're always stewing. They're always thinking. They're always wondering, what can I do next? What can I do better? Um, and that mindset is great and can serve people very well when they're trying to accomplish big things for businesses and developing new ideas. Um, but if you have the objective of also being a really good dad and a really good husband, right. that mind, that same mindset can be a huge downfall Yeah. Um, because your kids will always wonder where you're at and why you're looking at them, but you're just not there, right? Yeah. Like your brain's somewhere else and you're not focused on them. Um, and your wife, right? She'll always wonder where are you at? Let's yeah. have a conversation. Why aren't you focused on me? Yeah. Um, so that art of being present is crucial. And I think it takes some intentional devotion to figure it out, how to be present. Um, it's something that my dad is good at and has gotten even better at over the years as he's aged. Um, he runs his own business now, was a school administrator for 25 years, running big schools around the state. And um, he's a state president now. And He's gotten really good at that, at being present. Yeah. When he comes home from being a state president to my mom, he shuts it down. It doesn't think about all the other people's problems he's helping them with, right? And, right. Um, that was something he's confessed to me that he struggled with, and he'd be more than fine with me sharing this stuff. But as a principal, he said it was really difficult to come home at the end of a day. You've got a school with 2,500 students and 5,000 parents and 250 teachers, and you're in charge of all that. Yeah. And he said, it's hard to come home and shut it off and not think about that. And know that you've got to get up at six the next day and jump back into it. Um, It can be a lot of anxiety and stress that comes from that. And so it's hard. It's tough to do that. Um, But definitely for me, it's been one of the most beneficial uh, principles to try to live by and trying to be a good parent. And I'm far from being as good as I want to be, but... um, when I'm home with my kids, I try to just be home with my kids. Um, I don't look at my phone much past six o'clock at night. Really? Um, and I know, you know, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Tim Ferriss's book, Four Hour Work Week. Yeah. Um, love the book uh, because he's one of those um, entrepreneur type guys who doesn't think that money's everything. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and I really get turned off by entrepreneur guys who do think money's everything and are saying it. All that matters is you make as much money as you possibly can. 
Tim Ferriss kind of gets the point that it's more about lifestyle than it is money. And yeah. he says you can live like a millionaire on 60000 a year if you choose the right lifestyle Definitely. And, and feel just as happy as a millionaire. Um, and he kind of makes the point in that book that I love that we kind of have pinned in our minds the image of success as a dude in a tight business suit with his phone to his ear 12 hours a day, just pushing, 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 pushing. We see that guy yeah. like, oh man, he must be so successful. Um, but that's just not true. Right. That's not success. Um, in fact, you're in chains and shackles. Right? Totally. If you got to be on your phone 12 hours a day, <laughs> you're doing something wrong. Right. Um, it's the whole busy versus productive mentality. Yeah. Um, if you're if you're not able to hang your phone up at six and not look at it again until the next day, in my opinion, you're doing something wrong, uh, and probably limiting the amount of success you can have in life. Yeah. Um, because you're too busy to see good opportunities when they hit you in the face, right? right. Um, you're pushing too hard and not letting natural things happen and occur. So uh, that, to me, is crucial to learn what's really important to you. And that's up to everybody individually. Maybe 12 hours a day on the phone is what is important to somebody. I don't know. Um, but if being a good parent is important, then I think you have to draw some pretty firm lines with yourself. Totally. And say, hey, my boss's opinion of me or my client's opinion of me or whatever only matters up to a certain point. Right. For me, that point's about six o'clock at night. Yeah. And after that, it it's not that important to me because I got other things I got to take care of in life to feel happy and successful. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's one being present for sure. And I, there are a million others we could talk about, but yeah, that's had a big impact on me lately. I like that. I was thinking, I was in the temple last week thinking just in terms of success and um, just kind of had probably a whispering from the spirit, just mm-hmm. like if you were to obtain all of the money in the world and lose your family, mm-hmm. you're not a success. Yeah. If you were to obtain all the power in the world mm-hmm. and lose your salvation, you're not a success. Yeah. You know, If you were to be the ruler of this entire world and lose all these important things, you're not truly a success, you know? Yeah. And that was kind of a humbling moment. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> a humbling moment for me just yeah. to think like what's truly important yeah. in life, you know? And that's tough because uh, straight and narrow, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's hard to keep that mentality because the world is really loud. Yeah. And really convincing. Um, and it doesn't take much more than a 10 second advertisement on TV or, um, seeing your buddy's profile on LinkedIn to suddenly start feeling like, Oh, I'm not good enough. I got to do more. I got to be bigger. I got to be better. My my income's insufficient. My title's not big enough. Yeah. Um, that stuff sneaks in, especially to young, ambitious males, right. Yeah. That that have been raised in that kind of an American culture. Right. Um, and females anymore for that matter. It's becoming even more, uh, pervasive there as well for everybody. But, um, yeah, it's it's awful hard to keep that mindset that hey, maybe there's more. Yeah, maybe that's not so important um, to a point. Totally. Well, thanks a bunch for being on my podcast. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I don't think I'm worth much or have a lot to say, but uh, it's always no one hates talking about themselves, right? So, yeah. Well, it's the, it. the last guy that I had him on on my podcast afterwards he said like you find out so much more about a person when you interview them yeah like he's like i guarantee there's stuff you didn't know about me that just came out and yeah. I was like, dude it's totally right you know yeah. people it, are deep it's cool to kind of just get good conversation yeah it's fun <laughs> yeah. thanks for giving me a minute to do it yeah anything else you want to say before we wrap up no i don't think so keep going um 
I was listening to a book this morning. Um, a guy was chastising people for not uh, for not being the creators they were intended to be. And so I love that you have these ambitions and you're feeling creative and uh, want to tell your story and share your thoughts. And I think there's tremendous uh, value in, in going through with it. So keep it up. Thanks. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. All righty.